This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. So why is it, and under what conditions would it be okay for someone to let their mind wander off into the into their work life, uh, even in the middle of a worship service? So I can remember one Sunday, there was a particularly passionate worship director, and he was welcoming us all to worship. And he said, guys, I know you've all had a busy week. You've got a lot of things going on, a lot of things on your mind. But for the next hour, hmm. we're just we're just going to focus on God, and we're just going to praise Him. And he didn't mean to do this, but what he was really communicating was, don't think about your life outside when you're here in worship. This is a spiritual time. And I know that many of us, well, really all of us have experienced that moment during a sermon where our mind sort of wanders towards things of work. You know, maybe it was a conflict of the past week or it's a big project that's due the next week, but we start thinking about work during our Sunday morning worship, and we feel guilty. We feel like we're doing something wrong. Like the Sunday morning sanctuary is a is a spiritual time, almost like an escape from our lives. Mm-hmm. And that really communicates a, a profound division between our, our faith life on Sunday and our working life in the world. And what's profoundly fascinating to me as someone who's really dug into what this looks like in scripture is the ancient Israelites saw it exactly the opposite way. That the sanctuary and the street were meant to be in conversation with one another. That your your workout in the fields was meant to be carried in for worship into the tabernacle, into the temple. Um, and it's that integrated life that the people of Israel were called to that's that's really what we're trying to get after in this book on work and worship and how we bring our our daily labor into conversation with our liturgy. Yeah, that's uh, I think that's very helpful um, because I, I often talk about the biography of rituals. We get really hung up with the lamb getting killed at the tabernacle, later temple, um, but that lamb has a its own biography back at the hamlet uh, where mm. it was being raised uh, and all the effort that went into bringing that animal there and. Um, and thinking even, uh, if I could go back to your your kind of side comment about spirit, this is going to be a time, a spiritual focus, it sounds to me like um, you you would like to do away with that divide or soften the divide between spirit, spiritual and practical in some way? Yeah, actually, it's this division between work and worship that we have in the modern West um, is bad for the integrity of worship, and it's bad for the integrity of work. So we think that we are protecting worship by making it this spiritual place, but we're actually pulling its power away um, when we make it, you know, essentially purely spiritual or purely abstract. And for the people of Israel, they were commanded, never come before the Lord your God empty-handed. Hmm. Bring bring your fruit, bring your grain, bring your bread, um, bring your, your goat or your you know, your calf, bring what you have before God and let its aroma 
um, and they speak about aroma and they speak mm-hmm. about God having, having nostrils, right? Breathing in the aroma of these offerings because that's who you are. You're a farmer. So, you know, God made you to be a farmer and God delights in, in what you bring to him. Um, yeah, so that's the vision that we get there. <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, when I was uh, worked as a pastor in Scotland, any of the older pastors would all tell you, and actually I've, I've known some American pastors who would say, uh, talk about, you know, 50 years ago when somebody brought a, an, a tithe of a, a pig or a, um, a lamb or something, <laughs> or a bag of corn, because um, that's what they had produced. Um, and you, you still get a feast of the harvest in the Church of England calendar, I believe it's still uh, a yeah, that's right. calendar. Yeah, so from the Middle Ages in England, they have, they have old traditions of like blessing the plow. Mm-hmm. So the the pastor would go out and they would have a prayer service over the plow and they would march around the fields. The whole congregation would march around the fields mm. and uh, pray a blessing and a divine protection over the fields because they were fragile, right? right. They could be, they could be lost. And those were called rogation prayers, mm. you know, and, so this deep division between work and worship that we experience today is actually the rarity um, throughout the history of the church and in scripture and really the global Christian community. There are much deeper connections. So you know you can look at the church in Latin America and Asia mm-hmm. and, and Africa. They have all sorts of you know, like a service for blessing the bananas, uh, you know, prayers for uh, field workers and. Um, yeah, all sort, all sorts of things, and this is this is something that's really missing for us in, in the modern West. I think, um, you know, you and I, we teach college classes. I often, when I talk about work with my classes, I say, look, if you were to bring a biblical author into the modern world and and have them just watch me work, I'm putting scare quotes up uh, <laughs> for eight hours, ten hours straight, they might look at that and say, well. That, they never worked. They just sat there and you know banged their fingers on this flat surface or whatever. And, um, and I do think you know I was just talking to a colleague. You know, in, in academia, uh, gr- grading essays is about the closest thing we have to ditch digging, right? Because you just have <laughs> to keep on going whether you like it or not. Um, but there is this question that I think is is apropos here: is is our work if it's not actually producing anything if it's or if it's got this you know in my mind i like to think that what i work on actually has long haul effects you know way out there down 10 years from now but um do you think the scripture ought or sorry the scriptures or the church today ought to i don't know categorize work as the kind of like the stuff that needs to be immediately celebrated like the stuff that came in from the fields versus the uh, the kind of stuff that has long enduring effects, like maybe pastoring uh, or something like that, and think about work differently and not just flatten it out to, oh yeah, we all work. Yeah, I think that um, with the knowledge economy, for those of us who work on laptops doing email all day, it does become very difficult to think about how do I offer this to God as worship? Whereas if you're a farmer or a fisherman, you have something very tangible, right? Mm-hmm. At the end of the day. Um, and so that's why for people in the knowledge economy, I like to talk with them 
about the importance of um, celebrating and marking milestones. So um, in the Old Testament, when you would have a harvest, you were you were commanded to celebrate, to have a feast and to mm-hmm. mark that moment and to eat with your your servants and your family and the widows and the orphans and to have a feast and, and declare, you know, sort of the, the, the glory and faithfulness of God in your work. And so for those of us who are knowledge workers, um, when we get a promotion, uh, when we get a bonus, when we graduate, um, we need to have a regular marking, a, a celebration, a meal in which we bring together our coworkers and our students and we name what has been done. Hmm. We, we say it out loud and we, we praise God for that and we eat good food and we drink good wine and we pause. So we stop our, we stop our grasping. We stop our grinding. Uh, we stop grading <laughs> and, Amen. We, Amen. <laughs> and we name the goodness of God, you know, in those moments because, and this was critical. Israel understood that moments of harvest are the most spiritually dangerous times mm. because during the harvest, you will start to imagine that this is your land. This is your work. And these are your earnings by your sweat and there's no one to thank but yourself. And the, f- the feasting ritual would, would put your work in its place uh, within God's economy. Um, yeah, connect those dots there for people who didn't catch it. How does, how does a feasting ritual put your work in its place in the sense of helping you understand that it's actually God who provided these things? Not yeah, so, yeah, so Deuteronomy 26 is my favorite here. Um, it is specifically a farmer at the, at the end of harvest, he, um, he brings this basket before the priest and he lays it down and he's about to have a big feast to celebrate the harvest. But before he has the feast, he has to say a prayer and the prayer is written out for him. And he has to say this and, you know, imagine a powerful farmer being forced to say this prayer in front of all of his servants in his community. He has to say, my forefathers were wandering Aramaeans. They had no land. They were slaves in Egypt. They worked and toiled, but the Lord by his mighty hand freed us and gave us this land. And by his faithfulness, I bring these fruits. Um, So that out loud reminds him that if it wasn't for God, he would be a wandering Aramean. If it wasn't for God, he would still be a slave in Egypt. If it wasn't for God, he would not have this land. And so he feasts not by his mighty arm, but he feasts by the mighty arm of the Lord. And so in those moments of harvest, the Israelites had a ritual that would remind you what your work is for. And then that you're giving the, your profits to the whole community to celebrate. You don't hoard the harvest for yourself, but you share it. So the feast itself is teaching you um, that this bonus, this promotion uh, this graduation is not for you. It's for a, the blessing, the shalom of the whole community. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's rooted straight out of, well, maybe you would disagree, but that sounds to me rooted straight out of uh, Abraham, Genesis 12. The blessings come through Abraham, but for the sake of all the families of the earth. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Um, you, uh, I, I love uh, especially the biblical sections here. So this is you and Corey Wilson. Well, who is Corey Wilson, by the way, in this book, Work, work and Worship? Who is this Corey guy? Yeah, who is this guy? <laughs> who does he think he is? So Corey Wilson is a professor um, of missiology and theology at Calvin Theological Seminary in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And he and, he and I did our PhD work together Uh, But we did do a lot of extensive work with Christian professionals working in the marketplace. And Corey did a lot of um, very extensive interviews with um, Christian professionals on their spiritual practices related to their daily Hmm. work. Okay, so that makes him a a natural partner in in this endeavor. Um, I I was reading through here, and uh, I, I would say almost half of the book, the, the center half, if I can call it that, is essentially biblical and historical theology um, uh, of work where you seem to pitch that um, that what it means to be made in the image of God is to be a worker. Um, and, and by that, you actually, the most fascinating chapter for me, strangely enough, I'm a Pentateuch guy. But the Psalms chapter is where you you sold me hard. Um, and even lines like this, if I can quote it really quickly, it might be a helpful exercise for contemporary worshipers to imagine singing an adapted version of Psalm 23 in which God is depicted as our ICU nurse, our security guard, our waiter, and our HR representative. That's, that's the, the hard one to swallow sometimes, depending on your relationship <laughs> to HR. <clears throat> but um, yeah, talk to us about the image of God, the metaphors of God, and why why do you think work is so integral to the Psalms? Yeah, so <clears throat> what's fascinating about the Psalms when we talk about this a number of times is that you talk about human, human work comes up throughout the Psalms. So they're talking about tools and land and rain and soil and money and toil. The, you know, work is shot through. But the context for it is always behind God's work. So God's work comes before and it defines how I work. So you establish the work of our hands, as it says. Um, so God is described as a shepherd, as an engineer, as a farmer, as a designer, as a caretaker, almost like a nurturing mother. Um, God has a wide variety of jobs in the Psalms. God's, God, God is an active worker. And human work sort of comes alongside or underneath or behind and imitates God's work in very small ways. And uh, Psalm 104 is, is a wonderful example of this where um, it has this massive language about God caring for the earth and for the animals and doing all these little things and all the things that the animals are doing. And then you have just one little verse that says, and the people go out to do their work. Mm-hmm. And then it goes immediately back to God and God's work. And so it places that song that you're singing places your work within a much larger economy of God. And so that, that humbles the proud worker uh, and it lifts up the lowly worker because the lowly worker can say, yeah, my little job is a part of this much larger thing. Um, And then there's one other Psalm. We had an executive, uh, a CEO uh, wrote this little reflection on one Psalm that talks about sailors going out to sea Mm. 
<clears throat> and the sailors are out at sea and there's a huge storm and they're in profound danger. And by the grace of God, God saves them and they come back into the harbor. And the psalm says, and they rush from the harbor up to the worship assembly and they tell what God had done for them on the sea. And what this particular businessman said is, you know, being an entrepreneur is a terrifying thing. Mm-hmm. It's really scary. You're out there, you feel vulnerable, you're taking a chance, uh, and you're relying on God in so many ways. And it is right and good. This psalm, he said, reminds me that when God when God delivers me, I have to go and share that story um, with my fellow worshipers. Like I have to bring that with me. Um, and that was something that the psalmist is talking about there, mm. is that it's right and good to praise God for his faithfulness in the fields. Uh, and then the last thing, of course, is Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Imagine you're a shepherd and you're reading that, that like this vocation, which is dirty and wild and unsafe and disrespected, um, your your holy God is willing to be compared to your your lowly work. And that's that's profound as well. wasn't until I read a book I did an interview for my other podcast with a guy who'd spent decades with the Bedouins in the Jordan uh, and southern southern Israel when he actually described kind of the day and night job of a, of a shepherd um, and shepherdess because women are often shepherds in those in those regions um, you know we talk about shepherds you know being a dismal job nobody looked favorably the egyptians considered the shepherds an abomination according to genesis right uh but when you hear the like the actual dimensions of that job i don't think any of us would volunteer it actually makes you wonder like who is volunteering to you got to really like being alone and cold and hungry a lot um, yeah have you, have you ever seen that show by i think it's mike Rowe. it's called dirty jobs yes yeah yeah he follows this he follows these people who do these really tough, dirty jobs, and he's very respectful of them. And yes. he, he tries it out, and he honors them. But it's 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 quite similar to that, you know. Yeah. Psalm twenty three, we make it so serene and pastoral, but it's it's quite a comparison that God allows. <laughs> yeah, and 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 even that 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 becomes the paradigm for leadership in Israel from from early on. Um, the uh, interesting when you were talking about that kind of learning how our work it, it combines and is coordinated with this grander cosmic scale of work. I actually remember exactly when I learned this. It was before I was a Christian. It was in boot camp uh, where a our squadron commander came down, and it was like the only time I think we ever saw the commander, and gave us this twenty minute talk about how our glory. This is in the Air Force. Our glory was to be found not in ourselves, but in recognizing that we were yet one cog in a grander machine and that by doing what we should, what doing what we do well as that cog, the whole machine works, right? And as a 17-year-old uh, who had not done a whole lot with his life up to that point, uh, I just remember thinking like, oh, wow, I never thought about the world that way. 
Um, and I think it's one of those things that's very easy to mentally ascend to and very difficult to physically, daily, rhythmically, ritually ascend to. Um, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. <clears throat> yeah, so I think what I'd say, like, here's an example of what we're really getting after. Um, there, there's been a movement in the church recently to preach more often about work and to talk more often about faith and work. And I want you to imagine, if you will, you know, 10 nurses who are sitting in a congregation and they hear, you know, a short sermon series on faith and work. Now, they might pick up a couple of ideas. They might be encouraged. They might, you know, remember a few of the thoughts that the ser- that the uh, pastor shares in that sermon series. But now I want you to imagine that the pastor calls those 10 nurses forward and calls the elders forward. And the pastor has them lay hands on the nurses and prays a special prayer just for them um, about their work in the hospital, about their work with you know COVID-19, and prays a blessing and a protection over them. Uh, those nurses for the rest of their life will not forget that moment. Mm. And so as we talk about the cognitive thing of seeing your work as worship, it is one for thing for me to preach a sermon at people in which I tell them your work matters to God and they get it in their head, right? It's another thing to get that thing into your bones. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> that's the power of worship, of laying your hands on people, bringing them forward and saying you, um, you are participating in the work the work of God out in the world. And we want to bless and send you for that. Um, Because for many of these nurses, they're under the impression that the only reason they're there on Sunday morning is to uh, worship God and give money to the church because the church is the one that's doing the work of God in the world. Mm -hmm. They, They don't imagine that they themselves are doing that work. Yeah. My, my mother was a nurse and my wife used to be a nurse and, and it's, uh, it's very intense. She worked in the ICU and it's very intense work. You know, patients often died and everybody in the ICU is there because of trauma. Um, and it's very isolating too. I never really had appreciated that in my mother's work until my wife was doing it and realizing how alone, how emotionally alone uh, they feel when they're having to go through these things by themselves. And they come home and I'm like in seminary at the time. And what'd you do today? Why? Well, read half a book and took some notes. What did you do today? Well, I was trying to keep this guy alive all day long while his wife was crying over his body. You know? <laughs> like, oh my goodness. We're living in two different worlds here. Um, so yes, I can feel, even as you described it, I can feel the power of that ritual. Now uh, I've written a few books on ritual. So it's something I'm, I'm pretty concerned about in the Bible. Uh, I still don't think I know what I'm talking about, but I, I've <laughs> tried to work out some issues yeah, but one of the things that uh, became apparent to me is how much we are scripting our own rituals and that, that scripture actually expects us to do this, that we're, you know, there is no command or ritual of fasting. It's just expected that fasting is a wisdom uh, ritual that proceeds from a wise and discerning community that Deuteronomy wants us to be. Um, so how do you, I guess, um, what kind of liturgies uh, would you say, let, you know, let's create the field and then put up some fences where we might have crossed beyond them? Because I can think of pastors getting really excited about what you're saying and then coming up with some really goofy stuff that I might <laughs> I might not agree with. <laughs> if you've ever known pastors uh, that have come up with some really goofy rituals because they got really excited about some theological idea. 
<laughs> so you can think of um, two movements. You can think of gathering rituals and mm. scattering rituals. So a gathering ritual is one that that encourages people to bring their work to God. Like the good things, the bad things, we want you to communicate your work to God. And the scattering rituals uh, come at the end of the service in which you are blessing and you are sending. Uh, you're, you're giving them a charge to go. Um, so that distinction is important. <clears throat> um, so let's talk about how to gather workers. Um, the first thing is you need to acknowledge that when people come in on a Sunday morning, they are bringing a very diverse set of experiences from the week. So some of them have had an amazing work at week and they want to bring nothing but praise and glory and thanks mm -hmm. for all that God has done. Some of them are bringing a lot of confessions <laughs> of bad things that they've done or just things they need to get off their chest. Uh, and others of them are just bringing heartbreak and mm -hmm. sadness and lament, uh, discrimination. Um, and so the first rule <laughs> in, in gathering rituals is recognizing that people are coming with very different work experiences. Um, and so acknowledging that and also, you know, saying that there, there are a variety of things we can say to God. So mm. we talk about bringing your, your trumpets of praise and your, um, your ashes of confession and your tears of lament bringing your petitions, things like that. So you want to think in that way. That's sort of the end of the book where we talk about how to how to gather workers in. And that's the opposite of that worship leader I talked about at the very beginning who said, we're just going to think about God here. Right. Um, which is to say, your work stuff isn't welcome here. Hmm. So the opposite of that is gathering them in. <clears throat> and, then, and then in the blessing and the scattering, you want to... Um, send them out with power and with vision about who and what they're working for. Um, and I think for that, you know, for a lot of evangelicals, they, um, they know how to do this with missionaries. So mm. sometimes you have like a mission Sunday where the missionary comes forward and they share a story about, you know, I'm working in Papua New Guinea and here are some pictures um, and here's what God has done. And then everybody prays for them and sends them. Well, you can do a similar thing with uh, nurses. You say, tell us a story about what God has done. Um, give us some of your prayer requests. Now let's pray for you and send you. Um, you can do things like that. Hmm. Um, what, you, what you don't want to do is create hierarchies between different vocations. And, um, and you don't want to have sort of uh, an overvaliant view of work that like you can go out and change your company this next week by the power of God. Like you have to acknowledge the difficulty and the hardness and the frustration that is in work, the boredom of it. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, 
um, that phrase you used uh, in the gathering ritual. It, if you're saying your work isn't welcome here, it's basically like, hey guys, leave your personal lives at home. We're here to worship God, right? As, yeah. as, as dramatically cruel as that sounds, it's almost what you're saying when you're saying leave your work life at home. Right? Well, you're, what you're saying is essentially for the next hour, we're going to pretend. Right. <laughs> we're just going to play pretend that the world doesn't exist. Right. You know. And we can think about Sunday liturgies where a maybe a young, let's just say a young inexperienced pastor uh, <laughs> might not realize that people come in with burdens and joys and confusions, et cetera. Um, but the problem often I, I've experienced is the singular goal to remedy all of those issues is, well, let's just get everybody joyful or everybody know, you know, know that they're secure in their salvation. And there's just kind of like this one. Uh, you know, when, when you're holding a hammer, everything looks like a nail kind of uh, thinking and preaching and worship. So I appreciate in the book how you kind of walk through even the Psalms, giving people the language to kind of cry out to God, be a little bit mad at God, be mad at the people who are at work, not treating them well, etc. Yeah. And of course, for the people of Israel, the first thing they learn about this strange God uh, that has saved them is that they can cry out to him in times of toil and hard work and he hears them and he responds in a mighty way. Mm -hmm. So the first thing the Israelites know is they can talk to him about a bad job. Mm. And there are not many Christians in America who know that, mm. but that was the first thing the Israelites found out about this God. They knew very little about him, uh, but they knew that. And there are so many Christians today who have no idea that they can <laughs> complain to God about their jobs. <laughs> or just complain to God about uh, anything, right? Uh, <laughs> the the plat platitudinal Christianity has numbed us kind of to, to the emotional breadth and depth of Scripture here. Uh, and I love how you brought work into it. Now, um, we recently interviewed uh, a guy, Mike, Michael Eisenberg. He's a, a Jewish investment banker. Um who is really interested in thinking about how the Torah teaches us about like larger principles of economics, a really yeah. fascinating guy. And he was really harping on the dignity of work and that, um, so he saw universal basic income as a fundamental evil in the world. Um, because one of the things it does is it robs people of the dignity of work. And I think you've put a lot of meat on the bones of kind of what he was worried about there. So let's talk about, I'll, I'll give you as a old Testament guy, let me give you some hard cases then. Um, Abraham becomes largely prosperous by prostituting out his wife, uh, or, or making really what we consider bad moral choices. And yet God enlarged his crops or sorry, and, and enlarged his, his tent as it were, um, and animals in Solomon as well. I think of, I mean, I think we just have these really blaring examples in the Hebrew Bible, and I'm sure we could come up with some in the new Testament as well, where people didn't work for what they got. It was actually God piling on wealth. Um, and it seems like it has a slightly different function. And I, I don't know if you ever thought about this issue of what happens when, when wealth intercedes for work. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think, you know, there are a number of points in scripture where people are crying out to God because of injustice in the marketplace where they mm. see the, the unright the unrighteous man is prospering uh and the righteous the righteous man is being crushed uh where are you god why are you doing this um so 
The one thing I take from there is that we can cry out to God when things don't make sense. Um, the other thing I, I would just say that in, in those instances where Abraham's, you know, is getting wealthy, it's not because he's a particularly good businessman, uh, but it's right. because because God, by God's sovereign will, decided to work through Abram. Um, and I think the piece that comes there is um, God's faithfulness to you does not depend on your faithfulness to him. Um, God will be faithful. Um, and uh, so, so there's a piece there. But I'm wondering, I, I, yeah, I'm wondering if you can push more on this question. Well, I think uh, I'm, I'm a former pastor, so I'm thinking of some very specific instances where people would bring praise reports from work, like the kind that you were suggesting. And sometimes I would hear them and I'd think, okay, maybe that was a financially successful deal, right? That happened. Yeah. Or uh, I guess the equation of financial success to this must be God in it mm. often gets lumped in work or a promotion at work, right? Oh, I'm making more money. I'm in power. And like you and I have been around long enough to know that's not necessarily a good thing, right? Um, or maybe it is God that did that, but he's doing it to test you and ultimately humiliate you and bring you all the way down, right? Um, so I think there's this aspect of how do we assess God's I put it crassly, God's movement in our work or in establishing us and how do we appropriately give praise and how do we appropriately kind of hedge, I guess, uh, uh, when we need to. Yeah. So you won't be surprised that I'll say ritual is how we do that. <laughs> so <clears throat> Amen. Keep on saying it. <laughs> and again, he said ritual. <laughs> so as I said, you know, when harvest comes, when good things come, there are very specific instructions on what you do mm -hmm. in, in the Old Testament. Because as I said, these are spiritually dangerous things because you believe that you have done this. Um, and even if you were to say, um, God has blessed me this year with this harvest, then the immediate thing is not to sit back and think about how good you are, mm -hmm. um, but it is to praise God for God's faithfulness. And then it is immediately to, to share that blessing with the community. So the worst thing you can do is just say, wow, God really loves me. I'm super wealthy. Um, it is to say, oh my goodness, God has made me wealthy. I have a big job to do. Mm -hmm. I, I need to get about blessing others. So as a pastor, that's how you might say that is, wow, God has really blessed you. How do you feel called? You know, who do you feel called to bless with this? Mm -hmm. That's right. the next question. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Matt K-Mink, we never established how to say your last name. Is it K-Mink? <laughs> it's K-Mink, yeah, K-Mink. Oh, I was saying, okay, K-Mink, Dr. Matt <laughs> K-Mink. It was a pleasure to have you on, and thank you for your wisdom. The book is called Work and Worship, Reconnecting Our Labor and Liturgy by Matthew K-Mink and Corey B. Wilson. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.